Hey there, podcast listeners. This is Steve. It's spring break here in Fort Collins, Colorado. Though you wouldn't know it from the 12 degrees my car's thermometer told me it was outside this morning. Or the snow. Or the wind. But hey, seminary's on spring break all next week, which means I have the whole weekend to get this podcast out. And here we are. We're getting uh, two more chapters of Judges under our belt today, 17 and 18, sort of the beginning of the end. Uh, We'll tackle chapter 19 next time, then we'll finish out the book with the last chapters and some concluding thoughts. Then, who knows? Well, actually, I do have some idea where I'd like to go next, but this thing's a work in progress, um, so do this for me. Yeah, right now, um, hit pause or whatever, go to the website sdgriffin.com, find the contact me link, which is super easy to find, and uh, give me your thoughts. What would you like for me to cover next? You know, unless you're in the middle of a run or at the gym or something, then yeah, wait till you're back home or whatever. But do it. Um, I got a direction for us, but I'd be curious to know what you want. Here's something else exciting. We got some new technology upgrades up in here. Up until today, all these podcasts were coming at you from my $10 Best Buy microphone, the $10 special. Um, It did the trick. But, you know, this got to a point where I decided, you know what, I'm invested in this podcasting thing. Figured out all the licensing rules, which was more than a little bit of homework. You know, maybe it's time to put some some of my hard-earned lessons into practice and upgrade some equipment. Get some decent sound quality out of this thing. So, went out over the last week, got online, got myself a brand new studio quality microphone, and that's what I'm using today for the first time. So, here you go. I'm sure there'll be some... Some ironing out of some things and getting the levels all right, but uh, very excited to have some upgraded equipment up in here. So, all right, that's enough admin for now. Let's get into judges. The story of Samson ends with chapter 16, and from this point forward, the stage has been set for a full-on breakdown of Israelite religion and Israelite society. Chapter 17 and 18 are going to show us the state of Israelite religion and their worship of Yahweh, the Israelite God, while chapters 19 to 21 are going to show us the state of Israelite society. And remember, the narrator of the story of Judges has an agenda. And one of the things he wants to show us is what's happening in the tribes of Israel in the land of Canaan prior to the events of 1 Samuel and um, the arrival of, of the monarchy in 1 and 2 Samuel. This is how Trent Butler describes these last five chapters. I've quoted from him before, so let me, let me read this to you. Quote, The judges disappear in the final five chapters of the book of Judges. So does divine deliverance. Names of all types of leaders virtually disappear. The emphasis turns to the lack of a king and the loss of national morality. The violence escalates. End quote. So it's with this in mind that we're introduced to a man named Micah. The way we're introduced to him is by him admitting to his mother that he's stolen 1,100 shekels or, or maybe pieces of silver from her. And now he's coming to return them. Nice guy, right? He's repenting. He did something wrong. Now he's going to make it right. Well, mm, 
It turns out that before this admission, his mother apparently had spoken a curse over whoever had stolen her money. And in general, curses were taken extremely seriously in the ancient Near East. Um, We also see this much, much later. um, If you look at uh, life in in ancient Rome in the 1st century BC, 1st and 2nd century AD, curses, mythology play a a very significant role in um, public and private life. So Micah is, is revealing his thievery, probably out of a fear of the curse more than anything. So why does she then say to him, quote, may Yahweh bless you, my son? Well, it's quite possible that this was how the curse was lifted, a blessing to counteract the curse. So we see superstition possibly mixed in with Canaanite religious practices going on here. She then decides to make a series of idols with this money, and these idols are going to be dedicated to Yahweh. This is the, this word for idol is the Hebrew word pesel. It's the same word that's used when Aaron the priest makes the golden calf in Exodus chapter 32. It's the same word. Now, were the Israelites supposed to be making idols? Um, even idols dedicated to Yahweh? No. I mean, of course not. In fact, they are explicitly forbidden from doing this. And what's more, these are privately owned idols that Micah is making. And Micah then puts them in a private shrine in his own house. And what's more than that, he then ordains one of his own sons as his personal priest. So we have idols, we have private shrines of worship, we have private priests who have not been ordained the way that Yahweh commanded that they be ordained. Remember back to chapter 9 in Abimelech and how Shechem was full-on assimilated to a Canaanite way of life? Well, we're seeing that again. And again, this is happening in the north of Israel, verse 1, in the hill country of Ephraim, which is not too far from Shechem. Remember, we talked about that this narrator seems to have an anti-northern attitude, although we're about to see some negative aspects of the south of Israel as well. Okay, basic point, of course, is that they are worshiping Yahweh in name, but the practice of the cult, the way in which they're worshiping Yahweh, is in clear violation of the law. They've adopted Canaanite methods of worship and have just substituted Baal for Yahweh. Couldn't help but connect this uh, to Matthew chapter 7. And let me read that quickly, starting in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And this is in itself a direct quote from Psalm 6, verse 8. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This shows the consistency between the Testaments, doesn't it? We have an account of this syncretism, or worship of multiple gods combining multiple traditions together. We have an account of this way way back in Judges, which we're reading now. And then Jesus, over a thousand years later, referring back to the psalm, which was probably written several hundred years before Jesus. And all of this refers to this idea of invoking God's name, and even doing good works while invoking his name. While at the same time not submitting to his law or to his will. 
in any deeper sense. It's almost just using his name as a ritualistic tool as opposed to truly submitting to him as the one true God. We're going to have an opportunity to discuss this further here shortly. But for now, let's continue on with verse 6. In those days, Israel had no king. Every person did what was right in his own eyes. At this point, the story switches to a young Levite from Bethlehem. Remember, Bethlehem is in the south of Israel, not too far from Jerusalem. And this young Levite, remember, Levites were supposed to be the priestly clan or the priestly tribe. This young Levite begins to wander north, out of Bethlehem, towards the hill country of Ephraim. Something that the original reader would have picked up on, or if you really know your Old Testament trivia, um, is that Bethlehem is not a Levitical city. And what that means, there were certain cities laid out as the places that the Levites were going to live, since they did not have a tribal inheritance of their own. They were the one tribe that was excluded from having their own land, but they were given cities to live in. But Bethlehem wasn't one of those. So why does the Levite's family live there then? There's some scholarly speculation that the Levites were scarce during this time. And Micah sees an opportunity here for a real priest of Yahweh to serve in his personal shrine. We're meant to notice how aimless the young Levite's wanderings are. And to give up his familial associations to walk the earth just seems strange. Um, the family ties were, were so concrete in Israel that for a young man of this age to just go wandering off by himself um, is, is kind of a strange detail. This story does remind me a bit of my own life after college, just kind of wanting to explore and leave behind the familiar. I'm sure many, especially many guys, I think, can, can really relate to that feeling. Kind of an end of the wild theme here, or maybe on the road, you know, Jack Kerouac kind of thing. And it got me thinking, like, maybe these themes are actually, like, kind of timeless. Seeing as we, we've got here in Judges an account of a young guy doing this. And this is, like, 1150 B.C., or, or sometime around then. I don't know. I haven't thought too much about that, but it just kind of struck me as an, as an intriguing thought that um, the Bible seems to be speaking to this as sort of a timeless theme. Anyway, that's a kind of a side note. Micah meets this young Levite, bottom line. He meets him and he offers him 10 shekels a year, plus room and board, to be his personal priest, which actually isn't all that great a deal. But we're told that the Levite, quote, eagerly accepts this. And notice what Micah says in verse 13. He says, Now I know that Yahweh will be good to me, because I have a Levite as a priest. At this point, I'd like to read another scholar's opinion of this to you. Um, this one's from Daniel Block. He says this, quote, Micah assumes that now that he has engaged a member of this clan, he has automatic access to the resources of heaven. End quote. Back to Matthew chapter 7. So because Micah has this priest, he just assumes that Yahweh is going to bless him, right? He's trying to capture God in an idol, and now he's going to buy the right priest to go with the idol to ensure God's favor. He's trying to put God into a bottle, which is to be uncorked when he needs him. Okay, so on to chapter 18. We're reminded again that in those days, Israel had no king. 
And one thing that the narrator is trying to communicate to us is this lack of any central authority to pull this religious chaos back in line. We don't have a Moses or a Joshua to unite the tribes of Israel and to weed out these Canaanite practices. We see new evidence of this anarchy, that there's an entire tribe besides the Levites without any land of their own. And remember, this is the entire point of the book of Joshua, that each tribe has its own inheritance. So what happened? Well, the area that the tribe of Dan was supposed to occupy and to inherit is actually being occupied by the Philistines. You remember the Philistines? We just saw Samson's failures with the Philistines. He, he failed to overtake them. And now the tribe of Dan is suffering as a result. They have no land of their own. So what does Dan do? What well, sends out spies to find a good place to settle. And they end up, where else, but the hill country of Ephraim. And it's here that they meet Micah's young Levite from Bethlehem. It says that the Danites recognize his voice. Though it's unlikely they would have actually met, more likely they recognized his southern accent. Remember, he's from Bethlehem, as opposed to a northern accent. So the spies ask this priest, this Levite, to ask God on their behalf if their journey will be favorable. And he replies that the ways in which you are walking are before Yahweh which actually doesn't mean anything. It's completely ambiguous. It kind of reminds me of cold readings, like people who do cold readings. Um, something that sounds good, but really could be interpreted pretty much any way you like. And actually, we're not even told that the Levite actually asks God anything at all before he responds to these spies. So the spies move on, and they make it to a town called Laish. We have extra-biblical accounts of this town. We know it existed. Um, it appears in Egyptian texts and the Mari letters. Um, apparently, it was an important commercial city around 2000 BC, which is quite a bit before the, the time period of Judges. So at the time of Judges, we're told that it's highly isolated, um, which stands in contrast to being an important commercial center. But it's, it's under the protection of this town of Sidon, which is on the Mediterranean coast. But Laish is a fair distance away from Sidon, which means their response time in an emergency is not going to be quick. And the spies notice this. And notice also that these are likely Canaanites living in Laish. But the narrator is actually going to make them out to be the sympathetic characters in this story. Whereas the tribe of Dan, the ones plotting to charge into this peaceful, idyllic community, and to take it with violence are going to be the bad guys. So the spies come back to camp, and the message is, hurry up, this is ours. It's vulnerable, it's peaceful, it's just waiting for us. So they gather up 600 men, they arm themselves, and then we're given the route of their march. And they eventually arrive back in the hill country at Micah's house. The five men now say to this army, look, there's a personal sanctuary here. There's idols there's all that you need. There's even, there's even like a personal priest there. So they come into the Levites and Micah's home. Oh, and by the way, the Hebrew says, there are 600 fully armed men standing right at the gate outside. So the five spies are not by themselves. They've got this entire army backing them up. 
So the men of Dan, Dan come into the house and they begin to gather up the images and the priestly uniform and all of these things that they would need for worship. And naturally the Levite comes over and asks them, you know, what, what are you doing? But they reply to him, basically, and this is actually quite literal, shut up. <laughs> shut up. Place your hand over your mouth and come with us. So in one sense they bribe him. And he's now going to be the priest to an entire tribe rather than to just one man. And they say, hey, wouldn't you rather be the official priest to the entire tribe of Dan? I mean, right now you're just a priest for one guy. And, you know, he, he was probably also intimidated by the 600 soldiers gathered right outside, too. So there's, there's, there's a couple of reasons why he might decide to end up uh, going with them. You know, how great was this offer, though, really? I mean, Dan doesn't even have its own land. So their bribe of like, you know, why don't you come be the priest for an entire tribe? I mean, eh, yeah, but it's the tribe of Dan. I mean, <laughs> this Levite keeps getting crappy bribes, uh, but he does accept. And like I said, you know, the 600 armed men probably have something to do with that. And, and now we learn that, you know, it's not actually just 600 armed men and the five spies, but actually all of their families and all of their possessions are also with them. And so what they do is they place the families out in front of this massive procession. So this isn't just a military conquest. This is actually a migration. And why are the families out front? You know, why would you put the families out at the front of your military charge? Well, some people think that this might have been perceived as an offering, um, as a tribute. So if, if, you're, if you're an army and, you, and you're, you're coming up on your opposing army and you see a group of families and cattle and treasure and all these things at the front of the pack, you might think that the other army is trying to bribe you into not fighting. So that might be why they're out front. Um, another opinion is that maybe they thought that they'd be attacked from behind, from the rear, and so they put the families up front. In any case, Micah catches up with these folks, with this procession, and he challenges them. He says, hey, you've taken my priest, you've taken my gods, You've taken my idols. Like, why are you doing this? And how does Dan reply? Well, here's how he replies in verse 25. Do not let your voice be heard among us, or else men of bitter souls will fall upon you, and your souls will be gathered to death, your soul and the souls of your house. So that's a threat. The narrator is, is pointing out to us the loss of political and moral control that allows the Danites to plunder at will, basically, and, and really offers no protection or recourse for Micah. You know, here Micah had, had paid, him, him and his mother had paid for these idols to be melted down. He, he's the one who's paying and recruited this Levite to serve in his personal sanctuary. And now these people from Dan come, they take all of that stuff from him, and Micah has no recourse. And as the story goes, Dan goes to the city of Laish and conquers it. And then there's a surprise ending. There's a twist. We learn the identity of this young Levite. And his name is Jonathan. Jonathan, the grandson of Moses. This is a shocking conclusion to these two chapters. That Moses, the name of Moses, is now associated with blatant idol worship and these disgraceful acts and the conquering of a peaceful community. Okay, so what happened here? 
Well, we've got some case studies now of how Israelite religion and the worship of Yahweh has descended into one of ritual and superstition. It's departed from orthodoxy and orthopraxy, the way that it's supposed to be practiced, as it was given in the law to Moses. And the final three chapters of Judges are going to show us, then, the results that this has on Israelite society, which we've already seen here with the tribe of Dan, but we're going to see more of it. I think the modern-day application of all this is pretty clear. There's a word for the modern church and for modern worship in these two chapters. Again, looking back at Matthew 7, we can't just use the name of Christian and show up to church on Sunday and think that this somehow locks in our good favor with God. Even things like volunteering in a homeless shelter or or serving in a church community, these things can be rejected by God if we're using these things as totems to ensure God's approval of our lives. In other words, our worship of Yahweh has to be holistic. It has to be complete. Our faith in Jesus must then also be holistic. While our lives as Christ followers are covered in grace, okay, we, we acknowledge that, but we can't go through life thinking that showing up to church once a week and singing a couple songs that use the word God a lot, that's not equivalent to a life lived in submission to Christ. I mean, you've heard the, the scripture, our God is a consuming fire. Where our whole self must be devoted to God's holiness. This is what Christ calls us to under grace. Because we're part of God's new creation, being transformed by the renewing of our minds, our lives must be a witness to that fact. What if, just a a hypothetical, what if you walked into your local church next Sunday, Easter Sunday, high point of the year, and the worship pastor says to the congregation, hey, before you sing this song, to God, to Jesus, let's read the words aloud together. And if you find yourself not agreeing with them or you're not quite sure what they mean, you know what, how about you sit this one out? It's okay if you're questioning, it's okay if you're unsure about the theology behind this, but you know, we don't want to offer God empty words and empty worship. And it's not okay to be apathetic with our worship. And if the living God doesn't instill these kinds of words in your heart right now, you know what, let's talk about that instead of singing words that you don't mean. What if? Okay, please have a blessed Passion Week. Have a blessed Easter next Sunday. May you reflect on his goodness and his holiness and offer true worship to him. And next time, we'll be talking Judges 19. We'll see you then.